So uh, we're back in Revelation, and the title of my message today is The 144,000. Now, if you listen closely today, I'm going to give you a tip or a trick that will help you avoid strange conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Um, because they are all about this 144,000, and we'll talk about that today. Um, go with me to Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to read through the first um, eight verses. It says this, after this, John speaking, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Okay, the earth does not have corners. It's uh, just a literary device for us to understand, basically north, south, east, west. Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Verse 2, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe, pay attention to the language, of the sons of Israel. Now verses 5 through 8 tell us the tribe names and the number from each. So 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, from the tribe of Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, what does this have to do with anything? I'm going to tell you exactly what it has to do with, but as unusual as this might be, we're going to work backwards through this portion of Scripture so that I can help you just understand the uniqueness of this listing that happens. Um, Unless you are a really well-studied student of the Bible, um, you might not recognize that there is something very unique about the tribal listing. If you look at all of the tribal listings from the Old Testament, they're often labeled differently, not labeled, but they're listed in different orders. Sometimes it's based on how much property they own. Sometimes the tribe of Levi in those situations is not listed as a tribe because they did not have an inheritance of the land. They were the Lord's special portion. Um, and so they get mentioned in different ways that sometimes they get mentioned according to territory from north to south or south to north. There's a couple different ways that this happens. The Old Testament, the origin of the tribes is actually the 12 sons of Jacob. So I want to put those for you on the screen. There are going to be, today is Family Sunday. Children are in the room. I'm going to leave this to the parents to have conversations later about. Okay, 12 sons by four, um, four mothers. Okay, Leah and Rachel are two sisters. Okay, if you remember the story, and they may be familiar with the story uh, from Sunday school or from uh, learning about it in God's Word in their uh, reading. And then also by both Leah and Rachel's servants, uh, there are children or sons that are given to Jacob that are um, 
that are had by Jacob. So Jacob has 12 sons. He also does have a daughter. Uh, she is mentioned elsewhere in scripture, but God essentially in the Old Testament in Genesis, if you want to look this up, chapters 29 through 35, talk about the birth of each of these sons. The way I've had them listed there is according to their mother and their essentially starting with Reuben, he would be the oldest and the first. Um, so here's the thing. If you compare the listing in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, that we just looked at, and you compare the actual 12 sons of Jacob, you'll recognize that there's something pretty strange that happens. In fact, there are two missing tribes that are not listed in Revelation chapter 7. So Revelation chapter 7, the two missing tribe names are Ephraim or Ephraim and the tribe of Dan. If there are two tribes omitted, okay, stay with me. I know it's summer. I know it's Sunday morning. I know you've got other things on your mind. Stick with me here. If 12 tribes are listed in Revelation 7, but two were omitted, Somebody who's a child in here, tell me how much 12 plus 2 is. Clara? 14. So what? Pastor, what? What? How many tribes are there? Listen, you should read your Bible, okay? The tribe of Joseph, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, is rarely ever mentioned in the Old Testament because Joseph has Jacob, his father, bless his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they both get half of Joseph's inheritance. So essentially there's a mixture of 12, 13, or 14 all the way through the Bible, but the really specific thing to think about is the fact that these two are omitted. Now, in order to solve this conundrum and help you understand it, there are many times that Joseph is omitted and Ephraim and Manasseh are there, but surprisingly, Joseph is put in, Revelation 7, and Ephraim is not. Dan is also not mentioned at all. Um, in fact, he's not mentioned at all past the 4th century when Ezra, the scribe, wrote First Chronicles. The tribe of Dan does not appear again in scripture. But we all know a famous Danite. A Danite is a person from the tribe of Dan. And he was a famous judge and his name was Samson. So there's some mystery surrounding the tribe of Dan. But essentially um, scholars speculate about why the omission. Um, they can you can pretty much easily understand how Joseph's name would have gotten there instead of Ephraim. You can understand because they've been supplemented in other places or substituted in other places. But the Dan problem is a real problem when it comes to the listing because the text doesn't tell us exactly why Dan is not mentioned or why he's excluded. So I want to give you a couple thoughts that you can be thinking about. And again, this is to help you dive deep into God's word. Amen. So Jewish tradition holds that the tribe of Dan was the most apostate of all the tribes. They were supposed to be a seafaring people. 
the Bible mentions that during one battle, one such battle, they remained on their ships and did not get out and help the other tribes. And the word apostate that's on your screen, it means the, the most rebellious. It means the ones who forsook God, took on other gods, other nations' gods, and they served and worshipped other things. Every tribe was guilty of doing this and breaking the covenant with God at some point and very often throughout the Old Testament. But Jewish tradition holds that the tribe of Dan was like the worst of the worst out of all of those. Some scholars believe that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan because he's not listed in Revelation chapter 7. But I don't know what books you've bought. I don't know what podcasts you listen to. I don't know where your mind will go for things like this. But I want to tell you, hands down, very, very clearly, there is no scriptural evidence basis for that theory whatsoever. It's just pure conjecture. Okay. In fact, if you were to read all of the relevant passages about the Antichrist, which we're not going to talk about him today too much, they all seem to point to him having a Gentile heritage, not a Jewish heritage. So the whole idea behind a series like this is not only to um, help uh, cure some of your curiosity and to help you understand these things about the end of the world, but it's also to help you understand what you believe, why you believe it, and where you can find it. Because <laughs> when your pastor tells you there's no evidence of him being Jewish or from the tribe of Dan, then you should look into that. You should not just take my word for it. I've done a lot of study and research, but I want you to understand this because people ask these questions. They want to know, well, oh, is there going to be a Jewish leader that then is accepted? And then he's, and here's what antichrist really means. I'm going to put it to you in very casual terms. It means someone who opposes Christ. In fact, the antichrist is not the only antichrist that has been talked about in scripture, and it's not the only one who's ever existed. In fact, Paul says there's a church that's divided in the New Testament, and he says that those who divided and separate have the spirit of the Antichrist. That there are many Antichrists that were during those days that set themselves up to be worshipped and that kind of thing. And so at some point, we believe it will be a future point, there will be a person who is of Gentile heritage, who will set himself to be uh, worshipped, and this is who we will call the Antichrist. And we'll talk more about him in a future message. But enough math and enough about the tribe of Dan. I just want to point this out to you because there are a lot of people out there saying weird stuff that do not have any biblical basis for it. Back to Revelation chapter 7. There are 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. And if any kids in here know their times tables, Ava, which 12 times 12? 144. So 12,000 times 12 tribes is 144,000. Don't forget, these are all identified as ethnic Jews. It's really, really important. What I'm telling you today is important. They cannot be Gentiles. 
they have to be ethnic Jews because they descend directly from these tribal names that are listed. Okay, so back to verse 3. There's some weird stuff going on. I'm willing to bet, if you'll go back to verse 3 for me, uh, Miss Christine, I'm willing to bet that the only thing many of us know or have ever heard about foreheads in the Bible <clears throat> is not this verse, right? We've heard of something called the mar mark of the beast, okay, that they're going to get on their forehead or their hand, and we hear about that, and we'll read about that in Revelation, but I'm willing to bet that's the only thing that we've ever heard of regarding foreheads in the Bible, and you say, Pastor, why is that significant? Listen to me. If the beast and those who oppose God are trying to forge and produce like a replica, you could say, of God through a person, the Antichrist, then they are going to mimic things that God has already done. Hello? That he's already done in history. They're going to do something that is false that looks like it. Well, you say, is this the only place that foreheads show up? No, actually. The Old Testament context is pretty deep when it regards to forehead. In Exodus chapter 28, we're told that Aaron, who was the high priest, Moses' brother, he's the first priest during the Exodus from Egypt, that he is to wear special clothing. And listen to me, he is to wear a sign 24 hours a day on his forehead that says, holy to the Lord. This is the first time that this shows up in scripture about a forehead. This could obviously mean the crown being, you know, up here. This is where you would always have that exposed. Everyone would always see your face. Um, so that would be something that everyone would see. It would be important to understand there's a context behind this. Then in Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel sees a vision that includes a judgment coming for God's people because of idolatry and breaking of the covenant. And there are men inside of the vision in Ezekiel chapter 9 that are told to go and mark the foreheads of the righteous, of the faithful. And then everyone who has not received the mark on their forehead in Ezekiel chapter 9, in that vision, everyone else was to be killed. Those who have not been faithful. So... Aaron, the priest, has, has worn something that says holy to the Lord literally 24-7. Then Ezekiel chapter 9, they're told to mark the foreheads of the faithful in order to prevent their death. And if your brain is immediately thinking back to Exodus chapter 12, the plague of the firstborn, you're on the right track. Because there was a mark that was had, had to be put over the doorpost of the home in order to prevent the angel of death from killing the firstborn. There's a connection between these things and what we read in Revelation chapter 7. In fact, by Revelation chapter 7, God isn't marking furniture in the tabernacle any longer. He's not marking a geographical place. He's marking humans as his imagers who are going to be from the ethnic or ethnic background, I should say, of his originally chosen people. So the sealing or the marking of the foreheads seems to demonstrate a priestly role for the 144,000. 
You say, well, what does is, what is God need priests for? Do you know what the job of a priest was? It wasn't for the people. It was for God. It was the worship, the communication between themselves and God in the Old Testament. And now it seems as though if we're to connect the thread that runs through the Old Testament, that those 144,000 would serve in some sort of priestly role or function. And remember, the wilderness tabernacle was supposed to be a, a symbol or an image of a heavenly tabernacle, we're told. So it's, it's no surprise, it's not weird to think that there would be priests who are worshiping God and serving him in heaven, and they are what the Bible refers to as a remnant. They are a remnant of the people, God's original chosen people that he will redeem. So to recap this short portion, Dan is missing from the count of the tribes And the 144,000 have been marked just like the righteous have been marked in the other passages in the Old Testament. So I told you I'd help you get a Jehovah's Witness off the porch or stop the conversation. And I'm going to do that right now. I will tell you this. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that uh, only, listen to me, this is why things get weird. They believe only 144,000 people will be in heaven. I don't know if you've ever read some of their beliefs or engaged in a conversation. Now, there's a difference between Mormons, which are the, like, bicycle people. (laughs) Are y'all awake? Okay. Okay. So there's a difference between them and Jehovah's Witnesses who sit at, like, local gas stations sometimes and try to strike up conversations and hand out pamphlets. Okay. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that only 144,000 people since the time of Jesus will ever go to heaven and they'll be co-rulers with Christ over the inhabitants of a paradise on earth, which anybody else can be in. (laughs) So, hey, do your research and understand this. Um, So here's how you get them off your porch or out of a conversation. Just simply tell them you're part of the 144,000. I mean, it'll, it'll either shut down the conversation or you might get stuck there for a really long time, but the risk, that's up to you. I mean, you know, just my dad has engaged in conversations like that and a couple of them ended very quickly and a couple of them lasted a lot longer <laughs> because of this conversation. And they, I mean, you can look, do the research. They've numbered themselves like in 1935, there were 52,000 that said that they were marked and they were part of the 144. It's very strange. Okay. It is what we would call a cult. Okay. Jehovah's Witness are. <clears throat> as well as Mormons, they are not true believers. They do not believe in the traditional understanding of God's word the way that we do. And those people do need reaching. Um, Absolutely. But on a day when you're running late and that kind of thing, you don't have time for a conversation. This is how you get out of it. Okay, move on in the text to verse nine. We're going to look at verse nine through 12 of Revelation chapter seven. So John says, after he's seen this 144,000 numbered from each tribe, he says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude. Everybody read that phrase on the screen. A great multitude that no one could number. So uh, now there's a great multitude that no one could number. And they are from every nation all tribes and peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they are dressed funny, 
they're, they're clothed in white robes. They don't look like we do right now. And they're doing something very interesting. The Bible says they have palm branches in their hands. Is anybody thinking about something that we just celebrated like Palm Sunday and Easter? Okay. They're doing this in heaven, y'all. Okay. Verse Verse um, 9, it says they've got the palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, it says, and they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So they are reenacting Palm Sunday, but in a heavenly setting, in a heavenly situation where now it's not just 144,000, but it's a, a numberless throng is the version I grew up memorizing a numberless multitude of people and these people are from every people group so the scene has now expanded what john is seeing has now expanded from a distinct group which we would call very small in number because there's a lot of people on the earth today so 144,000 out of every total like all generations that have ever lived like that's a very small number and now it's expanded. So that's the remnant of the people of God. But now the Gentiles. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah? Okay. Now the Gentiles are included. And they are there. And this is an important concept for you to get. I do not, I do not attempt to try to understand what theology you have in your background. But I want you to hear me clearly when I say this. The church has not replaced Israel. Yes, I can look at Jeremiah 29, 11, and y'all could quote it, and maybe you even have a tattoo of it, okay? For I know the plans I have for you. Okay, that was a distinct word for a distinct people, God's people back then. Does that apply to my life today? Yes, you had better believe it does, but I'm not going to rewrite the Bible and say Israel is not there and put Dexter's name there and say this was only ever about Dexter. But there are people, specifically preachers and teachers of what they believe the gospel, they call the gospel, who will say that the church has completely replaced Israel and that is simply not biblical. It's not true according to the Bible. So I want you to have, I want to give you what my version of deductive reasoning is today to explain the concept for you just so that you understand. Israel is a biblical term that regards or involves the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who entered into covenant with God. The Old Testament is the story of how God led his people, how he fulfilled, how he made some promises. We sang about it a few minutes ago. He's a way maker and a promise keeper. Amen. He is keeping his promise. He is faithful even when you are faithless. Amen. So when Israel is talked about in the Old Testament, it's a very distinct ethnic group of people. Then when you move into the New Testament, this is where things get a little weird. 
not weird, bad, but like just you've got to be able to find the difference. There is a natural born Israel, and then there is sometimes referred to a spiritual Israel. So the spiritual Israel would be those who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Not every ethnic Jew will be in heaven. Do you, do you believe that? Okay. So not every ethnic Jew will be in heaven, but those Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah and placed their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus will be in heaven. There are some weird things out there, people. People talk about all kinds of stuff. The pe- people throughout history have used the Bible to back up um, their misinformed and demonic beliefs of racism, anti-Semitism, all sorts of things that have been spouted out and believed by whole groups of people. And they've tried to use the Bible to back up what they believe. And this is simply not okay. So this is why I'm telling you, study, study, study God's word and the context of the passages that you read. So in the New Testament, passages referring to Israel sometimes uh, refer to spiritual believers, and sometimes it refers to physical, ethnic Jews. So you've got to know the difference, and the only way to do that is to study and to understand. If you want more understanding, we're not going to go into it today, go read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Paul talks, he has this long discourse about this. So that's what Israel is, okay? Israel is either a physical place with physical people that were born from people who are ethnically Jews, or it's now those people who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And then in the New Testament, we get this other concept called the church. And the church is what you are today. It's not what you're in today. It's what you are today. And that is a spiritual community that's comprised of believers, regardless of where you came from or what belief or what non-belief you had before. When you come to Christ, regardless of your background, your ethnicity or any of those things, whatever other God or gods you believed in, when you put them all away and you say, Jesus is the only way, then you become part of the family of God, the church. So this same Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for Israel, has now become, and has always been, but for us in our view, while we're reading through this, he is the redemptive plan for all of humanity. So Israel and the church are distinct entities. One has not replaced the other One has simply now been included with the other, but not replaced. So there are some places in scripture that you can see them separated clearly, but I will tell you, not a single place in the Bible says anything coherently that the church has replaced Israel. So that's really important, I think, for you to understand that. God will keep his promise and expand his promise. That's what's really beautiful about this. So let's look back at Revelation chapter 7. We go to verse 9, 9 through 12 of what we were looking at. There is a minority of uh, theologians that believe that verses 9 to 12 are still talking about the 144,000. Uh, from verses 1 through 8, but the majority of scholars, 
and I am not a scholar, but your pastor believes this next statement that verse 9 to 12 do not refer to the 144,000. They were clearly just numbered, and now clearly in verse 9 we're told there is no number to this other grouping. And we're told that they don't have a specific tribe, nation, language, tongue. They are from all and every. Amen? That's so good. God, God will take whoever he can get. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your uh, social or economic or any other background, your faith background. God will take you as you are and change you into who he wants you to be. So the other interesting thing in verses 9 to 12 is that they're clothed in white. We talked about this in Revelation 3 and 4, I think, with the uh, or 2 and 3, with the letters to the churches. White symbolizes purity, but here it also would symbolize something important in a priestly or membership sort of role that this great multitude is clothed in white. They've all been grafted in to the family of God. And note the celebration. This is what's awesome. The celebration, again, includes both the one who is seated and the lamb. And everybody in heaven is worshiping. They all join into the song. Salvation belongs to our God. Power, might, authority, all of these things belong to him. So jump to verse 13, and we continue. It says, John says this, then one of the elders addressed me. Now, I've thought about this all week long. Actually, for two weeks, because I've been working on this message for two weeks, because I knew I had kids camp this last week, and it was crazy. (laughs) Can you imagine having a conversation with any heavenly being, okay? God withstanding outside of that, but any heavenly being, like, it would probably terrify you. But he's just having a casual conversation. One of the elders asks a question to John, and he says this. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Now listen to me. Questions that get asked from heavenly voices already have an answer. Okay, When God said to Adam and Eve, where are you? He was not wondering geographically, what bush you hiding in today? What part of the garden are you in? I can't find you. He wanted them to be able to recognize there was separation. So here the heavenly elder says to John, He asked this question, where are they, or who are they, and from where have they come? And John basically says, I don't know. I'm just here watching, bro. (laughs) Okay, he says this in verse 14. He says, "I I told him, sir, you know. And then the elder said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, that's an important thing, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. Not fully, but a little bit. The great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So if the 144,000 were marked and now this greater multitude, a numberless number, they are all there. They all are dressed in white. And it says, verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. 
And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Verse 16, they shall no longer hunger nor thirst. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. I don't know if you lost power like Miss Christine did, but she said, Pastor, you're not going to freeze me out of here today. I'm loving this air conditioner. Bless it. Bless it. I'm so sorry for those, and we definitely want to help anybody who are, who's in need, who is without power and that kind of thing. I even read this morning that the fire station down here has a cooling station and a charging station, a room set up for you to go and cool off with the air conditioning pumping um, to try to keep people from having heat stroke and other things. Listen, you won't endure any of that. Crystal, you won't sweat. I won't sweat. It'll be amazing. They shall hunger no more. You'll not be hungry. Kids who lie every day of their life. Mommy, I'm hungry. You won't be hungry anymore. You won't thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. I love the beauty of verse 17. It says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne has become the great shepherd. (laughs) The lamb. The lamb, this is so anti or counterintuitive to us as humans to try to wrap our mind around how God can use the symbols that he uses throughout scripture and then flip them on their head. That the lamb, which a lamb is supposed to be led by shepherd, now has become a shepherd and not just a shepherd, but the great shepherd. Amen. And it says this, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm trying to remember the, the, um, it's not Brian Adams. What is that song? Teardrops in heaven, tears in heaven. Huh? Huh? Eric Clapton. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I knew somebody would help me with that. Um, Again, you need to understand something. Reading the Bible, it doesn't necessarily say you won't have the ability to produce tears in heaven or that there will be no tears. It says he'll wipe them away. So here's the thing. What that signifies is there will be a lack of There will not be sadness, sorrow, grief, all of those things because God has cured those things. And when we get there, we will see him for who he really is, the lamb who has become the shepherd and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So going back to verse 14, it says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. We've just got a few more minutes and I want to cover a couple ideas or concepts that are here. How many of you have ever heard the word tribulation before? Okay. Um, some of you grew up in church, uh, so you might have a, a general understanding of it, but let me just make sure that we all are on the same page. The word tribulation means a time of great trouble. That's what that means. And it, it essentially, when we're looking at the great tribulation, it is a time of great trouble that precedes the return of Jesus. Psst, listen up. Here's something interesting, and we can discuss this later. Scripture never 
gives a clear, exact duration of the tribulation. You say, wait a second, Pastor. No, 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 no. I grew up in, and I know it's seven years, and I know about the three and a half year mark, and I know. So there are people who've done a lot of math looking at the book of Daniel, and they believe that it's a seven year tribulation, but the Bible never says this will be a seven year tribulation. So I, I'm trying to help you know what to believe and help you dive deeper into God's word. Now, there is some very credible things that theologians and scholars debate um, about Daniel's 70 weeks vision. And you can read all about that in the book of Daniel. But suffice it to say, the scripture that we have, Genesis to Revelation, never says this is exactly the number of years that the earth will endure tribulation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Go there with me. Talking about the great tribulation. Now, I know that probably surprised some of you, and we can talk about it later if you have something that you're willing to share with me and teach me. But just make sure that you know that we... Here's what I'm going to say. Every end times system of thought cheats. You say, well, Pastor, mine doesn't. I was raised in the blah, blah, blah church. Well, and we don't listen. Every end times system cheats somewhere. What they do is they come to a place of understanding one concept. And then whenever they come to a different place in scripture that says something contrary, they just call it a problem passage. Okay. I'm preaching to your intellectual mind this morning. I hope you're awake enough for this, but listen, if you're going to say the, the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation, You get, you're going to have to tell me more than the Bible shows me some idea of it. Okay. Because I just read in revelation seven, it says that not these who are rescued prior to a great tribulation, but it says those coming out of, so something happens. Well, yes, but God is good. And yes, listen, we can't get into all of that about the tribulation, but if you believe in pre-tribulation, we love you and we welcome you. If you believe in mid-tribulation, we're going to endure some suffering, we love you and we welcome you. If you believe that we're going to suffer all of it, we love you and accept you. Because listen, you can find one verse for each of those things in the Bible, depending on whose version you're reading and all those stuff. So don't, there is a problem today, and it just happened in New Orleans a few days ago. The Southern Baptist Convention, and I hope I'm not stepping on your grandmother's toes today. The Southern Baptist Convention had this big giant discussion and a major division on what I would consider is a third tier issue. It's not about the significance of the inerrancy of scripture. It's not about the virgin birth. It's not about that stuff. It's about something way down here. And there are thousands of people in an uproar and hundreds, if, if not more than that, churches in the SBC throughout the, throughout the U.S. that have all been up in an uproar about this thing that is much less on the scale of belief. So don't you mistreat. Listen to me. Don't mistreat or disregard someone who has a different opinion of a tribulation than you do because they're going to have a verse for one of those things and it's going to be your problem passage, okay? So your pastor is simply telling you that there's a wide variety and scope 
if you want more information about the issues with the SBC, you can consult the SBC. <clears throat> SBC standing for Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and I love those brothers. I love them. Um, I, I love our fellowship. Listen to me, church. I love our fellowship. But there are days and there are concepts that we have done wrong. We have not made the right choice. In fact, we have a dark history. If you look into the history of the assemblies of God, there is a major breaking point. And only literally, it took us 60 plus years to get to a place of reconciliation. But we literally divided racially way back in the early days. And that has caused great, I believe, great heartache to God, as well as long lasting damage in the body of Christ. So not one denomination is perfect, not one is holy, and not one has all the perfect ideas when it comes to eschatology. I will tell you, according to the Assemblies of God belief and our statement of faith that you can find at ag.org, because I visit it often, um, you can go there. They will say pre-tribulation. That is what we subscribe to, that we definitely do. Biblically, there's a lot of evidence for these other things. You've heard me talk about it recently. That doesn't mean I don't love the assemblies of God. It just means that there's other stuff out there. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. You've been looking at it on the screen. Let me talk to you about this real quick. We're still talking about tribulation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, And at that time shall arise Michael. Can't get into all of it. The great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. This is amazing. Either Whether you think that deliverance happens before any trouble happens, or it happens halfway, or it happens after, your people shall be delivered. It says this, and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, talking about the book of life in heaven. At that time, your people shall be delivered. This is really interesting, and I can't get into all of it today. Um, If you didn't catch it, Michael is mentioned as the guardian or governing angel of the nation of Israel. He is the great prince who has charge of your people. I believe sincerely there is a cosmic heavenly realm that we do not understand at all and are not taught about in Sunday school. (laughs) Okay. There's a lot of like amazing, wonderful things in God's word. Suffice it to say, this is talking about a time of great trouble. And this is what's said about it, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. You say, pastor, wait a second. Do you believe in guardian angels? Talk to me after service. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 says this, Jesus speaking, he says, and he's talking about in this passage in 20, chapter 24, he's talking about uh, the, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. He's talking about this end times individual, this leader, okay? And talking about all the issues that that entails. So if you're interested, Revelation is not the only place that the end times get talked about. Jesus spoke about it. And he says this in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, 
and never will be. So obviously, if you're going, if you're tracking through our series and you started in Revelation chapter one, when John is writing to the churches and he says, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation. He's talking about something there and then, but we are to understand that there is something then and there that we are going to be, that the world is going to be facing and it is called the great tribulation. So I want you to discover and understand God's word for yourself. And I really want you to know what you believe. And I want you to base it, surprise, I want you to base it on actual proof in God's word. That's what this is really about. This is not about man's tradition or stepping on somebody's toes intentionally just to start a fight. This is, I want you to know what you believe. And I want you to be able to point to it and say, this is why I believe this. I think if, if, if I were to rephrase what I said a few moments ago about the assemblies of God history and how it broke the heart of God to see that division based on the color of skin, I truly sincerely believe this, that the heart of God breaks due to the ignorance of his people when it comes to his word. I really do believe it. That's why I'm driving this point to you because I want you to understand his word and who he is and how beautiful a story of history, his story, all the way from Genesis through Revelation. And the end is filled with hope for us. Whether you got taken beforehand, in the middle of, or after it, there's hope, amen? All right, so the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, it's interesting because they've got robes that have been washed in blood. We have people in the medical profession here in the room. I don't know the scientific term for this, but I'm just going to say, if I got splattered with somebody else's blood, I would consider that unsanitary. Okay. If I walked into a room and saw a puddle of blood, somebody broke a, a leg or an arm and there was blood and you saw it, you would not think, oh, let me wash my clothes in this. Correct. The doctor says correct. Okay. Again, counterintuitive and there's a deep, deep, deep meaning behind this. But the reference there, understanding that purification in the Old Testament happened as a result of sacrificial blood, then we are to understand that the blood of the Lamb, it says they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they came out white and purified. That's incredible. Now, you can really dive deep into that and there's a lot to unpack, but I I can't go that far today. I want you to understand the sacrifice of the lamb, not your good deeds is what makes you acceptable to God. It's not just the apostle Paul who wrote it to a couple churches. It's, it's now John years later and he's receiving this revelation and he is seeing the same exact truth that it has nothing to do with and all these people that were gathered that couldn't be numbered all gave over a thousand dollars to missions no it has nothing to do with helping somebody with their groceries across the street like that old um thought of helping the grandma across the street with her groceries 
It's not about the good deeds you do or the kind acts. It's about the sacrifice that was paid on your behalf and you can't be there unless you've been there with the blood of the lamb, unless you've had that blood applied to your life. And here John sees it in the application to their clothing. But the only way that they're acceptable in God's presence is because they've had the blood of the lamb applied to them. And I love what verse 17 says about the lamb in the midst of the throne becoming and being their shepherd. Worship team, will you come and join me? God's ways, listen to me, this applies to your life. It might not apply today. It, you file it away for later. God's ways are counterintuitive to your ways. When he says in the scripture to the nation of Israel, my ways are higher than your ways, not just my ways are better than yours. My ways are uh, the best. <laughs> there are no other ways that are better than these. My ways but yet sometimes we look at a decision that we're facing and we feel maybe God pushing us in a certain direction and we think, that seems really backwards. God's ways are counterintuitive. There are sometimes they're going to make sense, but a lot of times it's going to be us stepping out into the unknown, into a place of faith, saying, God, I believe that you've given me your word, that you've led me in this path, that you've provided this opportunity. But God, I'm, I'm unsure, but I'm trusting you. I go back to the story of the pilot that passed out and the gentleman that had to navigate a plane they'd never flown before a day in their life. And they had to... to bring it in safely. They had to have faith, trust in that moment for the voice that they heard on the other side of the radio. And I'm telling you, there is a great reward for those who listen to the voice leading them in this life. And it's not my voice. I can come up with some good ideas, but they're not necessarily God ideas. Amen. Can I get an amen? Would you stand to your feet today? I really believe that there's hope in everything that we've talked about today. All, although there will be trial and tribulation, Jesus has already said earlier in scripture, and we read it recently, he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. And now we hear what John witnesses in the throne room of God, where he says, the lamb has become the good shepherd. This is amazing when we consider it. When you're stressed out and you're thinking, God, where are you at? When you're in the midst of not just a decision, but you're in the midst of a tension or a place of stress and you're going, God, I've prayed about this 150 times and I still haven't seen an answer. And Lord, time is up. I'm, I'm really at a place that I need you. I really believe that faith makes a difference when we put our faith in him. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? some aspects of the end of the world don't sound so bad because we know that we will be with him if we've given our lives to him if you're here today and you say pastor I have not given my life to him I have not made a decision of faith I've not put my trust in him and I'd like to do that for the very first time would you just raise your hand wherever you're at 
If there's anyone here, I want to make sure that we pray with you today and lead you into faith in Jesus Christ and salvation. For those of you who are believers here today, with your eyes closed, nobody's looking around, nobody's going to say, oh, look, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, Mr. Sam did this, he rose his head. No one's going to say that. Keep your eyes closed. I just want to ask you this in the presence of the Lord today. If you are in need of hope because of a situation that you're facing, would you just lift up your hand? You say, I need hope. I I need to declare my faith in him about this item, this issue on my calendar, this person, this situation. Their hands up everywhere. You can put your hands down. I want us to, in the next few moments, as the worship team sings this last song, don't be so quick to just jump in to sing the words, but make your seat a private place of prayer and just, just pour out your heart to God. I was so blessed this week. I was so blessed this week seeing hundreds and hundreds of kids with childlike faith in the midst of hard circumstances, divorces, broken homes, issues, oppression from the enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And their faith before God was something almost palpable, almost tangible. Today in this room, it doesn't have to be overly emotional. But I want you to declare that you believe him, that you trust him, that you're going to listen to the voice that's leading you. Father, I pray over Celebrate Church. Lord, we've been people of the spirit and Lord, we're becoming people of the word. I pray that one would not overwhelm the other, but that we would be people of the word and of the spirit, God. Lord, that we'd be studious about what you've given us as your testimony for history, but we would also press in spiritually into these moments. And God, today, I pray that you would give rest to the hearts that need it. Restore, and Lord, that you would make new again. Lord, that you'd give wisdom beyond our age and our ability. Lord, today, let it be a day of answered prayer and that hope and faith would rise in our hearts today as we declare we depend solely on you, not on our boss, not on our bank account, not on our spouse, not on any of those things. We depend solely on you. In the name of Jesus, I pray.